of reality checks for both Canadian national teams. The men's side fell to the top team in CONCACAF, while the women's squad lost the European champions from Netherlands. Neither loss was fatal to the respective tournaments, however, and how both teams recover from these setbacks will ultimately def- define how far they go. My name is Mitchell Tierney, this is the Footy Talks podcast, and on today's show we will chat about both national teams as well as a quick update on Toronto FC. To discuss all that with me, it's a show regular by this point. James Grassi of MLSsoccer.com and CanPL.ca. James, thanks for joining me. Mitchell, anytime. It's uh, it's always good chatting uh, a little bit of footy with you. Yeah, absolutely. And we've got the, the international break to discuss right now. Obviously, coming off of it a little bit for Toronto FC as well towards the, the end of the show. But let's start in France where the women's team, they suffer their first loss of 2019 uh, against a very good Dutch side. I mean, they were the European champions. Uh, a lot of people had them favored ahead of Canada to get out first in this group. Um, and and they did so. They, you know, 2-1 win over Canada. They were pretty high, you know, they're, they're pretty um, full value for it, I think. Um, but I think certainly Canada will look back at this game as uh, both a bit of a missed opportunity in terms of the path they potentially could have in the knockout rounds and also their performance as well. I thought it, you know, certainly it wasn't the best we've seen from Canada in recent years, certainly, or in recent uh, months even, certainly defensively as well. And uh, yeah, I think they'll they'll probably be a little disappointed with how it went. Yeah, it was a bit of a, a troublesome result in that in that this was... You know, you could look at this as their first real, real challenge of uh, of the competition. No disrespect to, to either Cameroon or New Zealand, who came before, and and for a team that that wants to build themselves on being solid at the back and and scoring the goals that they need to go to score to get results, um, to give up the two goals that they did, sort of, you know, the first one on a set play and the second one, uh, you know, that that you want your keeper and your defenders to do a little bit better on limiting those chances will be a real disappointment for, uh, for the Canadian women. Yeah, it was kind of, I mean, like you said, it was the first game where, you know, the other two, they were definitely expected to win and the, the games played out like that, right? I mean, we saw two teams sit back and a very defensive block. They didn't really pressure Canada's midfield very much, but when you've got a Netherlands team with one of the best front three, if, if potentially not the best front three in the world, um, if you're looking at Miedma, van der Sanden, um, and Martins, I mean, that's so much talent between the three of them. They all play for top clubs, and they, they showed it against Canada. And um, the Canadian midfield especially, they, they kind of struggled to play through that press, and may, maybe that's a bit of a concern for the rest of the tournament is, is Canada's play on the ball because... Um, a, a lot of unnecessary giveaways and a, a lot of kind of struggle, I guess, to transition the ball forward in a way that we certainly haven't seen in the first three matches where, again, they, there wasn't the same pressure on those players. That's that's always sort of one of the risks that you run in a tournament like this, especially when, when the third match of a group tends, is, is the most challenging one that you're going to face. It's right. easy to sort of, uh, you know, walk into a tournament and, and try and hit your groove but but until you're really challenged until there's really a team that that tests you it's hard to get up to full speed and so you know as much as this will be a bit of a disappointment I think it's also and I think the coach said this in his post-match comments was that uh you know this was a bit of a reminder a bit of a wake-up call that uh 
you know, you have to be switched on and focused for 90 minutes. And if you make mistakes, if you give the ball away in dangerous positions, and if you're not turned on when it comes to, to tracking runners and, and being aware of where attackers are in your box, then uh, you're going to get punished at this level. Yeah, certainly uh, some some interesting decisions for Kenneth Heidermuller to make forward, definitely in terms of uh, personnel. We didn't see Nichelle Prince, who I think has been one of Canada's best players so far at this tournament uh, against the Dutch. She has a bit of an injury. I, I'd expect we'll see her in the next round against Sweden, which is where Canada goes next on Monday at Parc des Princes. Um, Sweden ninth in the world right now. Canada actually beat them on penalties earlier in this year. So um, I don't know how much you <laughs> read into that in terms of uh, a nil-nil result of the Algarve Cup. Uh, they haven't beaten Sweden in a number of years. Actually, uh, an interesting stat I read today is that Canada has really struggled against European nations at the Women's World Cup. They've lost 11 of 13 They've never won a game against the European nation at a World Cup in my entire lifetime. The only time they did was uh, 1995 when they beat England. Um, so, you know, <laughs> that's certainly uh, something going against Canada in terms of history. But uh, again, those stats, uh, th- those are kind of those stats that don't necessarily matter about the game by game. And uh, Sweden, you know, obviously a very good team, like I said, ninth in the world, but um, certainly good to avoid the Americans. I think that's uh, that's definitely the case. And I think a, a potentially beatable team for Canada, even if this will be a difficult test and certainly made even more difficult, I think, by the fact that Canada is coming off a, a bit of a tough loss against the Dutch. Well, first off, you're making me feel really old with that, <laughs> man. In your lifetime, 1995. Geez. <laughs> um, I, I wouldn't put too much stock in... in those sort of things, you know, especially a competition like this that only happens every four years. Um, what happened before has has it has some effect on, on what comes in the future, but it's more uh, a curiosity than a than a necessary telltale sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if you can read too much into the whole Canada struggling against European opposition. You'd always like to think that, or you always tend to think that that certain regions have have a certain style of play, and and what you know that's the whole that's the whole theory behind friendlies when you're playing a South American team, you arrange a friendly against another South American team. And so there might be a little something to that in terms of clash of styles, in terms of maybe stepping up to the big occasion. Uh, but I don't, I don't know if Canada really has anything to fear in this match. They, they've come into this tournament and in some ways looking at sort of the odds that have been uh, put out there for potential winners, they they've been underestimated and, you were always going to have a tough game at this stage, you know, whether if they had topped the group, they would have ended up playing Japan, which is another another tricky, tricky game against a team that, mm-hmm. you know, while maybe not at the heights that they have been in the past, is still one of the forces in the women's game. And, you know, of course, you do have a potential date with Germany ahead, which uh, looks a little bit right. more troublesome. But, uh, you know, when you get into these knockout phases, there's always going to be tough opposition in your way. And, for Canada, it's really just going to be taking taking the lessons that they've they've picked up from these opening three matches and sort of looking to get forward and, and hitting the right foot. I think um, your point about missing uh, Nichelle Prince was was an important one. I think she's been she's been electric in these first two games. Uh, I, I think we'd like to have seen Christine Sinclair maybe finish a couple more of the chances that she's gotten or or see the team uh, create more chances for her given her uh, propensity for finding the back of the net, but. You know, on the whole, there have been a lot of positives to take out of these three matches. I think Jesse Fleming's been really, really good. I think Ashley Lawrence has been has been lively in that ball she played across for uh, Christine Sinclair against the Netherlands was uh, 
was fantastic. And then Kadisha Buchanan is one of the best defenders in the women's game. And, you know, marking against Netherlands aside, I think she's been uh, her dominant self throughout this tournament. So uh, it's it's looking good. And, and hopefully just this sort of uh, punch in the nose against the Dutch will uh, serve as a little bit of a wake-up call, as I said. I do need to correct a stat. I, I re- was realizing while you were talking, Canada did beat the Swiss at the last tournament. So it's only been four years since they've beaten a European side. Um, yeah, but the Swiss are neutral and not part of the EU. So right, exactly. Kind of, yeah. uh, so the, the, the actual stat was that England's the only European team they've ever beaten by multiple goals. But still, the Swiss and the English are the only European team. So the other part was correct in that they've lost 11 of their 13 against European sides. So um, I got that mostly right. But uh, like I said, while I was thinking about that, was like, wait a minute. They very recently beat a European nation. I remember it. Um, But one more thing I wanted to talk about before we move on is Christine Sinclair. uh, a bit of a surprise, I guess, substitution taking her off. You you do want to manage a minutes of a veteran player, although you wonder if that could have happened against New Zealand um, or against Cameroon in those games that mattered a little bit less, although, of course, the goals thing does matter. Uh, but Sinclair now becoming the second woman behind Marta, who scored earlier in the tournament, to score at five Women's World Cups. That's pretty incredible so uh big accomplishment to her and uh, what did you make of Sinclair coming off because um you know I, th- I thought it was you know at the time I said it was probably the right move I mean Leon came on and was excellent and I really do think that she could be a factor for Canada going forward in terms of the impact she brings off the bench but uh, an interesting decision in a game that obviously was uh was very tight and and Canada would have liked to win to take you know their most iconic player off the field yeah, you always want to keep your weapons on the pitch, and even if they're not at 100% or if you're if you're cautious about minutes, I know Canada has a bit of a break here before the next match, so maybe that wasn't quite the right time. We never really know if if maybe she's carrying something or or whether it was precautionary. So you know, it's hard to be a little it's hard to be too critical of a decision mm-hmm. like that, and you know sometimes. Uh, Sometimes you need to change the look of, of things against a team that, that seems to have your number on the day. And, and Leon is a very different striker from Christine. And so maybe that's a little bit of what uh, what Kenneth Hanamoa was, was thinking at the moment. Well, speaking of personnel decisions, let's move on to the Canadian men's national team, where certainly that was uh, the big topic of conversation after Canada lost 3-1 to one to Mexico. Um, If there's a a bit of consolation for candidates that they scored their first goal against Mexico since 2008, Uh, that was Ali Gerba scoring the the last time (laughs) Canada scored against Mexico. So uh, that's kind of how far Canada's come. Um, An interesting match, certainly a bit of a tale of two halves. Um, Definitely dominated possession-wise, but chance-wise, it it was a little closer. I mean, 18 to 10 were the shots. Uh, Canada had a lot of very good chances that they didn't necessarily convert on him and, and one that they did evidently. So, um, you know, there's there's a couple of ways that you could look at this. I mean, it's definitely a glass half full, glass half empty situation for for a lot of people right now. And that's the the big debate going on right now. Um, what, what did you make of the, the match as an entirety for the Canadian men's national team? Uh, I think on the pitch, I'll, I'll separate this into two, into two factors, if mm-hmm. you will. You know, on the pitch... Having uh, having seen Canada and Mexico play a number of times over the years, uh, I think it was important that Canada sort of um, announced themselves on, on the world stage, on the CONCACAF stage, if you will. And 
And what I mean by that is that for a long time, though Canada is one of the bigger nations in the region, they've not really factored in as being a threat to other teams. And mm-hmm. a team like Mexico could sort of look at a match against Canada and, and treat it much like they would treat a match against Nicaragua or Guatemala, where where they could pencil in a win and then it would take some some doing on the day, but it was more often than not a, a comfortable day for them. And, you know, regardless of the 11 that, that Herdman trotted out there, Canada Canada gave Mexico a match. It was a little bit uh, easier for Mexico in the first half, I think it's fair to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the whole, I think I think they will have cautioned Mexico that, that they're not a team to be taken lightly anymore. And, and that sort of feeds into the second point, which is... Uh, you know, Herdman has been playing his cards very close to his chest. He he telegraphed that he would be treating this game a little bit differently, given that it's it's the in the middle of the three group matches and it's in Colorado, so it's played at altitude. And you know, travel is tough in the Gold Cup, and it was a quick turnaround, and so he wanted to rest some of his key players. and And maybe this was a game that that Canada could uh, not overlook and not skip, but maybe one where they could uh, get some other guys' minutes and and work their way into the tournament. And, that's always a part of these tournaments is sort of navigating the uh, the, the shape of a competition. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have these three matches in a row and it's it's tough. And in CONCACAF, well, in the Gold Cup in particular, you're jet-setting all over the U.S. and there's tight turnarounds and travel is always a bit of a nightmare, uh, regardless of how well it's planned. And so Canada sets themselves up where all they have to do is, is beat Cuba and then they, they finish second in the group and have a date with either Costa Rica or Haiti in the quarterfinal. And then if they get through that, they have a, another match against Mexico and, and uh, he's kept his powder dry and maybe the Mexicans aren't quite sure what Canada is going to look like. Maybe in the back of their mind, they're, they're a little concerned at the way that Canada came into that second half. And, mm-hmm. and uh, on the whole, I think it was interesting. It was, it was tough to watch for the first, I, I have the, the first half on now in the background, just sort of, reliving it uh once right. more to to get a better feel for how it played out but uh i think we saw we saw canada show themselves better than they had against the mexicans in a long time and i think that in of itself is a thing of value yeah i definitely agree i mean with the first half it it did feel in a lot of ways like the canada we've seen in in recent years against mexico i mean it wasn't all that different from you know the floral matches at bc place or or even the one at azteca where canada were behind the ball the entire time um what i would say is they probably limited mexico to fewer chances than we've seen i mean if i remember that bc place game correctly i mean borean just bailed out canada like six times and um, it, it was absurd. He definitely did that in the first half a couple of times, but the, the clear-cut chances maybe weren't there that Mexico's been able to put in the past. But in terms of possession, domination, that sort of thing, I uh, I felt it was a little negative from Canada, and I was, I was kind of a little bit disappointed in that, just in the sense that uh, I would have liked to have seen them maybe take a few more risks getting forward and, and try and really go toe-to-toe again like they did in that second half. The other thing I didn't necessarily like, and... I, I almost agree with the reasoning, but just saying that um, John Herdman, you know, said that he wanted to keep his cards close to his chest and didn't want to give Mexico an idea of what Canada were going to do. I'm fine with the squad rotation, and all of that. I just thought the reasoning behind that and, and saying that publicly has kind of had a lot of people. And I know Herdman doesn't necessarily care about criticism, but it's brought a lot of criticism on him just because, you know, 
a lot of people don't necessarily agree with that mentality, but I do think Herdman is a really good tournament manager. I think he's definitely proven that with the women's national team. Um, and I do agree with the fact that if you get the first 11, basically, and I know, you know, you think Atiba Hutchinson sits based on the travel and the fact that, again, uh, Rose Bowl to Denver to Carolina is a ridiculous, um, a ridiculous travel schedule. But you'd think that probably Atiba sits, but probably most of their starting level will play that game. You know, you have a really good, solid, cohesive performance against Cuba, and then you go into that Costa Rica game with a lot of confidence versus the the inverse, which would be playing a lot of these same players we saw against Mexico, against Cuba, and then maybe some guys have had a little bit of time off. They're not necessarily, you know, moving in the same direction. I agree with Herman's, Herman's decision there. I just didn't necessarily love the wording around it, and I wonder if that's part of the reason why people are so critical of it. Um, I think I think fans tend to get ahead of themselves, and and you always want to see your team. Maybe this is the North American sporting mentality, but you know, if there's a game, you go out to win it. And mm-hmm. as you said, Herdman has a lot of experience in these tournaments, and, and if his goal, I was just uh, listening back to his post match press conference, and he said something to the effect of of they worked their way back from, from a Mexico match in the semifinal. And, and so sculpting how they wanted this tournament to play out was with that ultimate goal in mind of, of playing the Mexicans again in the semifinal. And so if you need to be strategic about how you get there and, and that's how you give yourself the best chance to achieve that goal, then, you know, that's, that's the right decision. Ultimately it will be, uh, criticism will be justified or, or denied based on, on what the team achieves from here on in. And, I think the, the one of the more intriguing things about the game, just as as I said, I have it on in the background right now, and mm-hmm. I'm thinking about it, is that you know Mexico's first goal was very much a a bit of not a lucky one in the sense that they had the pressure and they had the bodies there, but they capitalized on a mistake from Canada. It wasn't an instance where where they were dominating and they cut Canada open. It was a, a good shot that that Milan Borean made an excellent save on and Daniil Henry sort of gets caught drifting towards the ball and leaves his man alone and it's an easy tap in. And then the second one was, uh, you know, a wonder strike from, from Andreas Bordado, which, uh, you know, is going to happen sometimes if you don't close guys down a little bit. And I thought Will Johnson could have done a little bit better on that. And it, it very much had a different look to the, to the look from Canada, Mexico games that we've seen in the past where it's just Mexico absolutely threatening with every attempt going forward. And, and granted they had the majority of the possession and they had a lot of the chances, but, but Canada didn't look quite on the ropes the same way that they have in the past. And maybe in that itself, there's a little bit of a, of a going back to what I said before of, of a message to Mexico that Canada is just not going to be a side that you can walk over. The tricky thing, I think, is that I don't know with this Canadian squad as it's currently composed and, and with the ages of a lot of players, I don't know what approach you take to a match. I don't know what vision you want a game to, to take on. Um, you know, to go back to, to Greg Vanny, who, who I've listened to talk about tactics and about, about football a lot over these last few seasons, he always mm-hmm. talks about setting up a game so that it plays out into the vision of how you want the game to play out, whereby it plays to your strengths and it, and it takes advantage of the other team's weaknesses. And there are two ways you can sort of go about Mexico. You can go toe to toe and risk opening yourself up at the back, or you can keep things tight and try and limit their chances and try to hit a little bit on the counter. And I think we saw both of those from Canada in these two halves. That first half, they were very much trying to deny and, 
and look for their chances to break forward. And in the second half, we saw them go a little bit more expansive and look mm-hmm. to get their guys out. And, you know, given the attacking talent on this Canadian squad, I think I think you have to you have to consider that maybe you're you're best to go toe to toe with Mexico and get into a boxing match where where maybe you rattle them a little bit with with uh, what Jonathan David can do and what what, uh, what Alfonso Davies can do and what Lucas Cavallini can do and, and all the attacking weapons that Herdman has at his disposal. But then you open yourself up to to Mexico's attackers having really good looks against. Uh, a Canadian defense that's that's very much a, a few years away from being at its best. Yeah, it, it is interesting in that aspect. And, you know, you mentioned sending a message. We certainly saw that when Canada did open up in that second half and, and switch to the 4-3-3. And there was a, a good chunk of that half where Canada were absolutely dominant. And that's probably the best stretch of soccer I think I've seen a Canadian side maybe ever play, at least in the, you know, the past, 10 years they they were so good they were cutting Mexico open they looked great in the counterattack. Uh, maybe decision making in the final third was was a little bit off but even then there was a couple of shots that went just wide of the post that sort of thing uh, interestingly came after something of a triple substitution I mean in, in very short order David Arfield and Osorio came on and all three of those players were excellent made an instant impact and obviously David setting up the goal and Osorio coming close as well I thought that was kind of interesting because I remember, I think it was the last Olympics where John Herdman almost did something similar against Germany where he he held off until the 60th minute and then subbed in Sinclair, Schmidt, and Matheson all at once to try and, uh, I guess, make like a late impact. It didn't necessarily work almost because of the same circumstances because Canada went down 2 nothing. but it's interesting to see Herdman try something like that once again uh, in, in this match. But I think we did... And I think he did learn a lot about this Canadian men's national team in the sense that uh, we we now know some of the personnel and, 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 you know, who fits best and who can handle a game like this. And, and at the same time, there's there's still a lot of questions as well. Certainly, uh, we were talking before the show that left back position remains a remains a big question. And, you know, from that kind of leaves the rest of things because depending upon who's playing left back opens up spots in the midfield opens up spots on the wings um uh, i'm wondering what your thoughts are on that can you know considering what we've seen so far from uh, these two games yeah when i was i was helping out with the projected 11 for for canada for the uh, match against mexico and i was sort of scratching my head about uh about what would be the right way to to go about things and you know through two matches we've seen uh you know, Mark Anthony K play at left back. We've seen the possibility of Alfonso Davies playing at left back. I almost thought against Mexico it wouldn't have been a bad shout to throw Ashton Morgan in there, a guy who's vastly experienced, has, mm-hmm. has tasted this CONCACAF, um, has tasted the flavor of football that's played in CONCACAF before right. and, and had good success with TFC there in the past. And it's one of those sort of conundrums where until, until, a couple of guys, you know, Marcus Godinho looked a little shaky in that first match, but but he's been lively. Zach Brogiard looked looked all right, but we have to remember they're both 21-year-olds, and mm-hmm. that's just looking at the right-back position. I'm looking for somebody to step up in the left-back role, but just because you always, you always prefer to have somebody who plays that position week in, week out play there, but I don't think you can go wrong at the moment with putting either Mark Anthony Kay or Alfonso Davies there. I think they both give you 
something very different from that position, definitely. And you're you're giving away a little bit of their true strength by taking them out of their their preferred positions. But it's been a this might be a little bit uh, a little bit old, but. You know the the game is constantly sort of evolving tactically, and and with the middle of the park being as congested as it is, and with players being so fit and so tactically sound that, you know, in the last let's say five ten years or something like that, the, the outside fullbacks, whether they're wingbacks or, or proper fullbacks, is sort of been the one place on the pitch where you can find space and and you have time to operate and you can get up ahead of steam before you're being confronted by somebody and. For for and for Kay to be playing there, he gives you that sort of the playmaking ability that he has in midfield. He can operate from that time and space that you get out there on the mm-hmm. left back spot. He can step into the midfield when Canada's in possession and and use his skills there. And it it, it kind of changes the angles a little bit, and it it throws the other team's plans off just because they have to account for somebody who's not where they should be in in your standard tactical plan and. You know, with Davies, if you give him 10 yards in the ball to get up ahead of pace, there are very few players in the world, or at least in CONCACAF, who will be able to stay with him and and shut him down. And and that's that's a, a weapon that Canada shouldn't be afraid of exploiting. To go back to the projected lineup, I had I had Canada playing a, a very boxy sort of back two and and three. Uh, three central defensive midfielders almost sitting in front of them with, with Davies at left back and then Liam Miller at right back. And mm-hmm. the idea was just you shut down the middle of the park, you fill that with as many big bodies and as many defensively sound players as you can, and then you use that width and that space that will be provided by it to get those two attack-minded players forward and use them to fling balls into the box to, to the big body of Lucas Cavallini, who's, who's a pretty dominant forward and, and did pretty well against... Uh, the country where he plies his, yeah, his trade, good. where he plays his league football. And so I think I'd, I'm st- I have so many question marks about how Herdman's going to line up for the Cuba game. I have absolutely no idea what he's, what he was keeping close to his chest when it comes to that rematch with Mexico and, and how that's going to go. But the Canadian national team right now is in a real transitory phase where for the longest time, goalkeeping and defending was sort of the meat and potatoes and, and the midfield was generally pretty strong, but you had to rely on on uh, guys like Ali Gerba to to provide those uh, <laughs> goals few and far between, though they may have been. And we've seen a real turnaround in the the attacking talent on this team is clear to see, and, and they just need to shore some things up defensively and and figure out how best to utilize the guys that they have while they wait for uh, for a couple of the players that I've mentioned to get the experience and and come along and, and be like true seasoned professionals. So. It's very much a work in progress for this team, but I've been uh, I've been pleasantly surprised with what we've seen in this tournament so far. Yeah, and as we've alluded to, Canada does wrap their tournament up against Cuba on Sunday uh, in North Carolina Bank of America Stadium. Uh, that's where the the Panthers play. Um, what for you is what are you looking for in this match from Canada? Because obviously Cuba's had a pretty disastrous tournament so far, uh, combined ten nothing. So far, in terms of goals difference, they're losing players. It seems like all the time, uh, which unfortunately is is something we've come to expect from these Cuban teams uh, at, at tournaments like this. But um, I guess another match where you know you'd hope Canada can can score a few goals, uh, maybe work on a few things tactically, and and comfortably get to the next round. Because basically, barring something absolutely ridiculous, a a, w- a win does that. 
Uh, in CONCACAF, you can never overlook the possibility <laughs> of something ridiculous happening. You never quite know in it's this so region. Uh, but that said, this this should be about as... I'm, I'm not one to, to make bold predictions, but this should be about as sure of a thing as, as you can get. I think Cuba are minus 10, having been beaten 7-0 by Mexico and 3-0 mm-hmm. by Martinique, who, who Canada beat 4-0. So, you know, by the transit of properties there, Canada should be in pretty good uh, pretty good stead to, to do well in this last match. Uh, just building off what I said before about not really having a clear idea of what Herdman's going to do is... Does he does he go back to his preferred eleven in this match? Does he trot out the strongest lineup, or does he maybe give some of those guys who haven't seen a lot of minutes uh, a chance to to get their feet under them? You know, Kyle Laren did not look great against the Mexicans. He was tasked in sort of a, an outside role that's not really his his cup of tea. And mm-hmm. you know, Liam Miller, I, I don't even think is he's, he got a few minutes in, at the end of the first match, but yeah. I don't think he he saw anything against Mexico and. You know, Russell Tybert acquitted himself well. Will Johnson is a, a very veteran presence that calms things down in the middle of the park. And there are a lot of different things that Herdman can do. And if if the if the intent with how they trotted out against Mexico in the in that second match was to not give Mexico a a glimpse of what Canada was going to look like, then I don't know what the value is in in putting out your preferred eleven and utilizing those those. Uh, tactics there would be you know is this a chance to sort of assume that your squad is going to get the job done and maybe hold a couple guys back and and keep your powder dry for uh for the quarterfinal and the semifinal yeah it'll be uh, again more interesting decisions ahead for john herdman um so we'll definitely be watching and uh there'll be more of course on this podcast in the coming weeks uh, about how Canada get along there. Let's move on to Toronto FC, who are back in action after a couple of weeks off, taking on FC Dallas on Saturday night. Um, good, uh, like, hat tip to Martin Bailey, who does stats for us at Waking the Red, and um, about the reminder that Frisco, Texas, has been an absolutely horrible place for Toronto FC to go to play. <laughs> Two of possible 27 points in MLS action. I think they beat... Dallas once there in uh, CONCACAF Champions League action, but in, in the league it's been pretty horrendous. I mean, we think of Gillette and, and Rio Tinto uh, as kind of the house of horrors for Toronto FC, but Toyota Park definitely has to be up there, especially after that game that uh, there was the thunderstorm and all that, and uh, it took me you know like five hours to cover. I will never forgive FC Dallas after that <laughs> match, but at any rate, um, uh, you know, certainly a place where Toronto FC uh, haven't necessarily had a lot of success and not exactly where you want to go in a match where, you know, the Toronto FC could definitely use a win to pick up this. It's not quite the second half of the season, but certainly, um, you know, it, it feels like a different phase considering the, the break and the opportunity to kind of regroup they've had. Yeah. I, uh, I always like to break these MLS seasons down into a couple of different phases. You know, you have the sort of opening bit of the season and then you have, where things where teams are sort of figuring themselves out and they're getting themselves up to speed, and then you have the next sort of month leading into whatever summer break there is going to be, because there's always some kind of a summer break in MLS, and and this is sort of a transitory period where teams haven't gotten their players back from the Gold Cup, and Toronto will be missing a, a couple of key guys in, in Jonathan Osorio, Michael Bradley, and Josie Altidore. Um, so these next four matches are going to be a real a real tough test for a team that that has done 
well in the last few weeks, but has to be very disappointed with the way that 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 second phase of, of mm-hmm. the season has gone for them. They started out really well, picked up some big wins, fell out of the Champions League, which which was disappointing. Um, and then strung together some results in the league. And then as soon as the calendar turned to May, they seemed to seem to run into some of those same old problems that we've seen from them for the past 12, 16 months or something like that, where giving up soft goals, not making the most of their chances, just uh, and then giving away far too many penalty kicks, as we've seen in the last two matches in particular. Mm-hmm. But there's definitely a, a willingness to fight and to stay in these matches. In Vancouver, they give up that penalty kick, and, and they find a, an equalizer late on against Sporting Kansas City. Twice they're fired by the officials, and then <laughs> uh, twice they find ways to, to get back into the match. So we're we're seeing those green shoots uh, that you need to see from a club that's that's sort of still finding their way in, into their identity for this season. And I think that's sort of the operative phrase for this team. I Whenever I try and encapsulate how it is that the season's gone for Toronto, I go back to something that Michael Bradley said after they were knocked out of the Champions League. And he, he said that this was a team that, that came together late. And I, mm-hmm. I think you... You have to look at the offseason, and, and they thought they had addressed the weaknesses that they had going into the year, only to lose two really key pieces in Sebastian Jovinko and, and Victor Vasquez. And and that that sort of curveball just changes all the plans that you've had. And then the extended the uh, extended transfer saga that saw Alejandro Pozuelo come to town mm-hmm. and arrive a little bit later than they would have wanted, and then an injury to Josie after he missed the start of the season and then Michael Bradley picking up an injury and then the gold cup. I, I couldn't tell you that we've seen Greg Vanny get a chance to trot out his, his preferred 11. And, and I couldn't even tell you for sure that we know exactly what his preferred 11 looks like. And, you know, with Omar Gonzalez just signing to the team and, and the transfer window about to open back up and, and talk of, of the team uh, adding some reinforcements in this period. So I think it's going to be a little while until we get, a true picture of what this team has to look like. And, you know, this goes back to my, my point about how I break the season into phases. Uh, I was up at training on Wednesday and we spoke to Drew Moore. And mm-hmm. anytime you talk to Drew Moore about the rhythms of MLS, the the key word that always comes up is, is the MLS summer grind. And <laughs> it's almost become like a trademark, the number of players that I've heard refer to the summer grind. And it sort of it alludes to the middle part of the season, whether that's July and August or June, July and August, however you want to break it down, where the games come thick and fast. It's hot. You're traveling around a lot. Those midweek games really pick up in intensity and the schedules get packed. And and this is the time of year where, where teams sort of make or break their seasons. The points that you pick up here will set you in good stead to, to be there when, when the sprint to the playoffs comes around. And that's very much what Toronto is looking to do. They're looking to to not only pick up the points that they need, but to figure out exactly what kind of team they are and how they play and who those people are going to be that are on the team sheet when Vanny puts in his lineup. And so that's what I'm looking at these next few weeks as who who raises their hand and, and says that they should be a part of that. And then when the Gold Cup players come back and the reinforcements arrive, how does that team sort of shuffle out as they work their way through this grind and you know, come September, I think we'll have a, a much better view of, of what this team can do this season and, and what sort of their fortunes will be. 
Sounds like some kind of uh, hilarious wrestling promotion. Summer Grind 2019. <laughs> <laughs> the MLS Summer Grind. It's a hot park, yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like I've seen that commercial before. but <laughs> yeah, That's the but, monster truck voice. Right, 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 right. <laughs> I wonder if I can get that guy on the podcast just to <laughs> say things just for transitions and that sort of thing. But... Um, yeah, it's like you said. It's it's definitely a, a very important stretch for Toronto FC coming up, and and you know it seems like the, the Seattle Sounders are kind of the the peak team for doing this every year in terms of their ability to start a little slow and, and turn things around. This is the time of the year where uh, kind of the the MLS contenders and pretenders start to separate themselves. So uh, Toronto FC would, would do well to get out in front of that and start putting together a couple wins so uh, they can start to move uh, on the correct side of the, the red line. But uh, yeah, certainly starting in Dallas, that's going to be important. And um, as you mentioned, I mean, a stat I heard today from, from the Come On You Reds podcast with our colleagues Gareth Wheeler and Terry Dunfield was six penalties given away this season, and that's the same as they gave away all of last year. Um, so that kind of speaks to the the individual errors that have, have made this team, um, you know, kind of vulnerable and made them struggle. And we have, uh, or we, we know that they have a player coming in to hopefully fix some of this, and that's MLS veteran Omar Gonzalez, uh, their big signing. Um, what do you make of this signing in the sense that, I mean, for one, um, you know, a solid MLS center back. Uh, I know Oliver Platt has done some statistics around uh, teams winning MLS Cup, and I think it's Chad Marshall, Omar Gonzalez, and Drew Moore has been on like every MLS Cup winner since like one of those three has been on every MLS Cup winner since like 2007 or something. So uh, certainly a player that that knows what it takes to win in this league. Um, but at the, at the same time, you know, Toronto FC now spending a lot of money on on defenders. Um, I, I was running the numbers this week, and I think they're spending a million more dollars. And we obviously don't know Gonzalez's compensation yet. They're already spending a million more dollars on defenders than they were during that MLS Cup winning year in 2017. And obviously, we've seen their defensive numbers so far. So uh, a very interesting signing for Toronto FC and one that uh, I'm interested to see how it plays out. Yeah, first off, I think if you need a monster truck guy, you can get Terry to do it, judging on uh, how he's been uh, announcing the TFC2 matches this season, which has been uh, about that, yeah. thoroughly entertaining. It has been thoroughly entertaining. Uh, yeah, Gonzalez is a big pickup, and, and of course, Chad Marshall retired, so now TFC has uh, has both of the, of the center backs that have been key to uh, winning MLS Cups for the last half decade or so. Uh, I'm not quite sure what this means in terms of how it's going to play out. You know, you have Gonzalez, you have Moore, Mavinga, Simon, Zavaleta, and, and of course Julian Dunn, who's yet to see any minutes for the first team. So then he has, uh, they've definitely been been stacking up the uh, the collection of center backs that they have on the roster. I'm curious to see if, if he's going to play around with a back two, a back three, if he's going to rest some guys. The schedule for TFC coming up is is pretty intense, I think. We all sort of know how busy the schedule can get when you have CONCACAF games involved, but with MLS condensing the season and looking to end a couple of weeks earlier, that really, for a team like Toronto, that that not only has the potential of CONCACAF matches at the beginning of the year, but has those Voyagers Cup matches that will be coming up in the next mm-hmm. few months as well, Right, uh, things can get really, really busy on you fast, and, and having a lot of bodies back there can be very useful, but... I think it's hard to criticize the Gonzalez pickup in in 
terms of what he will add on the field. I, I think you're getting a, a commanding center back, a guy who, who knows MLS, as you said, and, and who's only gotten better in terms of the range of experiences and, and working on certain parts of his game since he went down to Mexico. And um, I think one of the interesting things was uh, we were on a conference call with, with Omar uh, a day or so after he was announced, or maybe it was the day that he was announced, and, and TSN's Christian Jack asked him about his ability to play out of the back and something that he's sort of been, been working on. And uh, I think that's something that Toronto is very much focused on this season. Um, they've been trying to institute a, a bit of a different style, and and I think this goes to the defensive numbers we've seen, that despite the amount of money that, and resources that they've been they've been putting on the back line. Is that, and this speaks as well to, to the penalty statistic that you brought up, is that I haven't seen a lot of goals that were were straight up defensive mistakes. Uh, granted, there there have been a lot of them, and the penalties in and of themselves as a single instant are definitely things that that if you gave a defender a chance to do it better, then they would they would want to take that chance, but. I look at goals, especially the ones that Toronto has been conceding, as more of a function of of getting caught trying to go forward too much and leaving their defenders exposed. I think if you look at Laurent Simon, if you look at Drew Moore, if you, if you look at Chris Mavinga, uh, these are all intelligent footballers with, with a lot of experience playing. And when they can keep the game in front of them, when they can keep things under control, then, mm-hmm. then they're at their best and they're looking good. And, and what's tended to happen to Toronto is they've been so focused on, on going forward and setting themselves up into attacks that they haven't always protected themselves behind the ball. And then a bad turnover leaves you caught out of position. It leaves you unstructured. And then defenders have to make miraculous plays like Mavinga is known for, or, or they have to, get into last-ditch tackles like we've seen Simon do and we've seen Drew Moore do when they're faced with a, a younger, faster attacker that's bearing down on them. And that's not a position that you want to put your center backs under. And so I sort of look at the defensive frailties and the penalty kicks more as, as a function of the system than of any particular vulnerabilities that Toronto has had at the back. And when we look at uh, the amount of money that they're spending, and as you said, we're not sure exactly where, where Gonzalez is. I think it was it was said that he was a TAM player, so he'll be somewhere in, in that range. Um, for a long time, MLS has been a league where the money has been spent going forward, and the defenses have been sort of a, a makeshift what can you what can you find locally what can you find in the drafts who can who can what bodies can you put into these positions to put something together and you know, Toronto was at the vanguard of, of making the league uh, a very attack-minded league a couple of years ago uh, with the 3-5-2 that they instituted. And and that the defensive spending is sort of definitely not catching up, but, but creeping up a little bit on the attacking spending is maybe just another evolution of this league in terms of it, it needing to continue to take steps forward in, in order to be uh, just better and better as every year goes on. Yeah, I mean, their defensive spending is still a sixth of a Josie, so um, <laughs> there's that to consider. <laughs> but, um, yeah, definitely a busy stretch coming up for Toronto FC. I mean, by Independence Day, they will have played Dallas, Atlanta, D.C., and, uh, of course, the L.A. Galaxy on Independence Day. Um, so, yeah, it's a good chance here for Toronto FC to get the summer grind started off well. Summer <laughs> grind. <laughs> but, yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on the show, James. This has been a pleasure as always. Oh, it's always a good time, Mitchell, and uh, I'm looking forward to the games this weekend. Yeah, and uh, thanks again, everyone, for listening. I uh, hope you all have a great weekend as well. And Terry Dunfield, if you're listening, come on and do some Monster Truck impressions. Yeah.